Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. Superman grand scoffed when Joan came to stay with her in London that summer. You're not a hero, Joan. She bent her head confidingly. You're a monster. She said monster like being a monster was as special as being an elf. Gran was making up Joan's bed in the guest bedroom and Joan was helping by stuffing the pillows into their cases. The room smelled like fresh laundry. Morning sun filled it to the corners. Monsters look like giant spiders, Joan said, or like robots. She'd seen enough cartoons to know. Gran sometimes told jokes without smiling. Maybe this was one of those times. But Gran's eyes weren't shining with a held-in joke. They were serious. That's pretend monsters, she said. Real monsters look like you and me. That's an excerpt from Vanessa Land's debut novel, Only a Monster, a gripping new adult, young adult fantasy that's already sparking interest here and overseas. When Joan Cheng Hunt spends a summer at her grand's house in London, she learns a secret she can never share. The Hunts are monsters, one of 12 secret monster clans in London, and Joan is one of them, half human, half monster. Soon, a series of terrifying events will shatter everything she knows and loves. Nick, the boy she has a crush on, turns out to have his own secrets. And when the London monster clans are attacked, Joan's fortunes are thrown in with a supercilious Aaron Oliver, who's monster clan are sworn enemies of her own. As she is drawn deeper and deeper into the world of monsters, Joan realises that to save those she loves, she'll have to embrace the monster inside her. Vanessa joins me now to talk about her book and the craft behind it. Vanessa, welcome to Backstory. Thank you so much, Mel. That was an amazing introduction. <laughs> well, I, I actually think this is an amazing book. I have to own that I am not a huge reader of um, young adult fantasy, but I was really gripped by this right from the start. So I need to really ask you, this, is such, this feels like such a complete world. There's so many things going on. There's so many elements to it. There's so many rules and understandings and families and family law. How do you even start to build a world of this magnitude? Thank you. Um, I actually did a lot of work on the development. Um, I spent actually a couple of years on the development of all the characters and the world building. Um, there's some time travel in the book, so the time travel rules. Um, and then I started writing the manuscript. It's a really interesting process when you think about the idea. I mean, when I write things, I really struggle with plot just generally, and this is there's so much mechanical stuff that's going on behind the scenes before you even get to the the writing part. Um, the other element to this that really struck me was, you know, that little introduction that I read was in a slightly younger voice than the rest of the book. That's an introduction, a prologue that's sort of in a child voice. And then you move into this sort of young adult um, you know, grounding for the rest of the book, the central characters around 16 or 17, 
throughout and it really sticks within the kind of understanding of someone of that age group. How do you channel those different sort of age groups? How do you get the complexity of something into the complexity and let's face it, darkness woven into this while still sort of um, speaking to people, you know, in their sort of mid to late teens? interesting question. I haven't actually thought about that before. Um, I think, I feel like that I've always really liked middle grade, so I think that initial middle grade voice just came to me really naturally. Um, And then the great thing about YA is that it's so often so immediate, so they're really um, very engaged with their emotions, Um, they're feeling very strong and raw emotions, and so that can be quite fun to write as well. Yeah, it's really, there's some emotional honesty, I think, to young adult that you sometimes, you know, don't necessarily, you know, you can get, can be a little bit more flip with adult fiction, I think, sometimes. And I think um, you really have to feel like you're inhabiting a young adult book. And I certainly felt that while I was was reading through this. There's a a real propulsion um, to the narrative, but at the same time, the, the emotions have to feel authentic as well did you how did you kind of work on that sort of balancing act um I guess I really thought back on you know when you are when you are that age you're often experiencing big life events for the first time so you might be having you know first love first grief um and I just tried to stay in touch with that really immediate raw emotion and trying to keep it unjaded I guess try to keep it um really authentically kind of the first emotion, the first time you felt that emotion. Yeah. There's really quite a lot of dialogue and I think that the descriptions are really kept to a minimum, but they're very impactful. So I can feel that there's been a lot of pairing back. And I, if it's okay with you, Vanessa, I would love to talk a little bit about the process you had of workshopping this because you were a part of quite a few different workshopping groups. And I, I want to talk about... Um, one in, one kind of workshop in particular that you went to, which was the Clarion Workshop. It's a a fantasy and um, and sci-fi focused workshop based in San Diego. Can you discuss that experience a little bit? Oh, it was amazing. Um, so it's a very long running fantasy and science fiction workshop. Um, really, every like all my favourite writers have either been there or they tutored there. Um, and it's actually a six-week live-in workshop in San Diego. So you live with 17 other people who are also writing, um, and then each week you get a different um, established writer as your tutor. Um, and it's very, very intense. You write a, a story a week, and you critique four stories a day. <laughs> and it's, But it's amazing. I feel like... Being so immersed in writing, being among people who are so enthusiastic about writing, I I don't know, I wish I could go again, but you're only allowed to go once. (laughs) Can you talk about that process a little bit? Because I think people who haven't experienced a workshopping class of any sort, which is really the benchmark for how you progress in writing, is really having that process of critiquing your work and also other people's work. What is it that you actually get from workshopping? if you can kind of give a sense of that experience to the listeners. Yeah, I mean, so I don't know if listeners have done that Milford Method method before where you present the work the night before and then um, you meet up the next day and each person gives a little bit of a critique in a circle and then the writer doesn't 
speak until the end. <laughs> um, but I feel like it's a, it's a method that really rewards a lot of trust. So um, when you really trust the, the critiquers, um, you can get a lot out of it. And I feel like one of the things you can really get out of it, sometimes you notice that there are patterns in the things that people are saying and, and you kind of can realise, oh, when several people are saying the same thing, um, that probably is something I would want to address. Yeah, it's a really interesting thing that I think um, I think people are maybe, um, you know, have this understanding of writers that perhaps we're quite thin-skinned people and and don't necessarily like criticism but it is kind of a really essential part of getting better at your craft is to have that that kind of sense of interrogating why you do something and why it's working or why it isn't working as well and you can kind of then well, you know, agree. yeah break it a little bit and see how I it works. I think it also helps yeah I think it also helps when you're doing it physically so you know, you give feedback and then you get feedback from the same people and it can be, um, I feel like you, you you form a kind of a level of trust. You kind of believe you trust their taste and they trust your taste and um, I think those are really good critique relationships. But of course, you can, you can also have, you know, bad experiences. Yeah. But I think as you get more experience, you like, yeah, you find, you find your people. You learn how to sort through those things. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. mean, how would you, like, and again, I, I mean, I, I do want to mention, in fact, uh, your book has been um, blurbed by C.S. Picat. Those who are very um, interested in young adult fantasy or fantasy generally will know that name. It's uh, quite quite a well-known person now in, um, in terms of writing uh, incredible genre novels. Um, was, in fact, one of your workshopping partners or someone that you had as a, a critiquing partner, I think was a term that you used? Um, yeah, so once a week we have a catch-up um, when we do, we call it brainstorming or problem-solving where we'll just talk about, I guess, the problems we're having with our manuscripts that week and we'll solve each other's problems um, and sometimes we'll give each other manuscripts but um, more often we're just problem-solving. Yeah, one of the things that really occurs to me about that is that actually you're getting mini deadlines all the time. And one of the, you know, it's quite easy to get lost in a manuscript of this size where you're you're wandering around and not quite knowing where you're going to end up. Is that something that you would very much recommend to emerging writers to have these kinds of sort of imposed deadlines or self-imposed deadlines? Um, I don't know about other people, but when I first started writing the book, um, I actually did this thing with my clarion classmates where we did 300 words a day and then we shared it. And that was so helpful for just getting the manuscript started. Um, and a little bit inspiring to see everyone else's 300 words a day as well, kind of really immersed in kind of creativity, which was really fun. But I would re- I'd definitely recommend... I guess I'd, I'd recommend whatever works for you. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. 
it's a really quite incredible story. I'm sort of unsure with uh, with books that are very um, plot focused uh, how much to give away. But I have to say there are some really in, this sort of pulls together a lot of elements that people will love. There's uh, you know this kind of weird sort of morality tale flipped on its head where the you know central sort of protagonist is in fact a monster uh, and the hero is perhaps maybe the enemy Um, you're also getting uh, a sense of time travel coming through um, all sorts of kind of things including I think there is this element uh, running throughout the book of Vanessa being between two worlds I feel like this is something of if not a trope then something that does tend to appear quite a lot in in kind of in fantasy novels this idea of being um either mixed race or being um part something part something else being you know the person that sort of sees both sides but isn't quite accepted by either can you discuss why that element has been wound into your book in particular and you know maybe how it does kind of appear in some of these um in a lot of genre books in fact yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? Um, I guess I'm half Asian, so I had really wanted to give my main character a similar background. I know that when I was growing up, I didn't often get to see, um, I guess, people like me in, as the main character in books, um, or even, like, I guess, as sidekicks. So it was really important to me to include that representation in the main character. Um, and then it's also, it's also true that... Um, I think I'm really drawn to characters who belong in multiple worlds and, like, interact with multiple cultures. So I also made her a half monster. (laughs) Yeah. There's quite a telling, um, you know, parallel early on in the book uh, where you are sort of comparing it with the kind of, you know, racism that the young character experienced at school where, you know, certain things about her heritage were being denigrated and you're sort of seeing this be replicated somewhat in the way that monsters are viewed, in the way that, you know, the human half is viewed, this idea of people, um, you know, reducing through bigotry one or the other side of this character. I feel like there is something about how um, genre books deliver this idea um, that that kind of really helps to maybe um, break ground for better understanding. I'm sort of interested in in where you know is this are these kind of themes that you are going to continue to wind through your writing? Yeah, definitely. Um, I guess. Um, having that background myself, you sometimes can't help but be interested in those things and have that as a bit of a preoccupation of the story. So definitely um, it's wound through book one and I think it will be wound through um, the whole series, particularly because through that fantasy lens, the main character is really torn between her two sides and um, I guess in ways that sometimes seem unreconcilable and I'm really interested in exploring that as well. Yeah. Uh, you, now, one thing I do want to discuss about this book is that you have already um, sold the rights into a few different jurisdictions. I think that it is going to be released in the US and in the UK as well as here in Australia. I mean, it's quite a feat, obviously, with a first novel to have uh, multiple kind of um, jurisdictions publishing the book at once. How are you feeling about all of this interest? And has there been any kind of uh, differences in how the book has been edited for different places? Um, that's really, yeah, that was really a surprise to me. Uh, my agent initially took it to the Frankfurt Book Fair um, just before the pandemic, and 
she just managed to sell it to all these territories. I don't know. She's amazing. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but, yeah, it has been slightly differently edited in different places. Um, one of the things I had noticed was that uh, the, Ameri- the American version had to have a few changes. Um, there were things that I didn't realise, like they don't have the, the blinking green man at the, the pedestrian crossing. <laughs> so they were, the American editor had to like alert me to all these things that just wouldn't make sense to an American audience. Yeah, it does make sense. Um, and also the setting, I was interested in the decision to set the main events of the, um, of the story happen in London. Was there a reason that you decided to choose London as the central setting for the action? Yes, yeah, so I had really wanted to explore, I guess, a diaspora experience in a big city, so I thought London would be a good one for that. Um, and I also knew there was going to be a time travel element. And London is such a documented city in terms of its history that you can figure out almost anything that has happened in London at any era. Um, so it was very, it was a very easy place to, re- I guess, research. Um, and even, like, you would just know where you'd have to be standing to travel in time to get to a particular location. So uh, that was why I chose London. But having said that, I feel like it's quite a, 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 a very Melbourneized London. <laughs> Yes. I, I think, well, look, I mean, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because you can have quite a lot of action happen in a very small physical space, um, even though the characters are sort of traversing through different time frames. You're sort of really, you're bounded in quite a, a small area that you're travelling. Uh, I kind of, reading this book made me think a lot about, you have a lot of plates spinning at any given time, even though the actual story on the surface feels very, you know, smooth and it's moving along really nicely. There's just so much that's going on beneath the surface. Did you feel like, how did you go about sort of plotting it around London, a city that presumably you were writing mostly here and perhaps in the US as well when you set sail? I'm probably mostly here, um, and I didn't even realise until I had only made it this very sunny and dry London. <laughs> I was like, I probably should make it more like London. Um, but yeah, I, because I had mostly developed it inside my head before I even started writing it, um, I had kind of structured it in my head as a series of revelations, and I guess that's what gives it that feeling of a lot of plate spitting. I guess I, I knew at the whole time I was writing it, um, where it was going, um, and I guess that includes the sequel as well. Um. Yeah, now I do. I want to touch on this because I finished. You know, this this book is you can read it as a standalone book. Obviously, it is the only book you have released, and it's um, quite a complete story. And there's everything going on there, but it does feel like you've planted the seeds of a of a second book um, that could come out of this. Is there something in the works? Can I ask that? There's- Definitely. So um, there's actually going to be three books in total, um, but the first one does have a complete arc. Um, but when I had conceptualised the whole thing, I had initially thought it might just be one book, and then when I started writing it, I realised that I couldn't fit that much plot in one book, so it would have to be three. Yeah. Yes, it's quite like there is such a lot of world that I, you know, feel like you've only just sort of touched the surface with that you've 
um, you can you can feel that that you've built something beneath it. It's very it's very well constructed. And I was fascinated by what you said earlier, where you were talking about how you had to consider the. Um, I think I can't ex- exactly remember how you phrased it, but something to do with the time travel um, rules. Like, are there rules that in genre that you must follow, or are there, or are you pretty free <laughs> to bend them? Do you feel like your audience has an expectation of certain things, or you know, how how do you kind of like both work within some genre expectations and also subvert them for your own ends? Yeah, so um, time, I hadn't realised how difficult time travel would be to write. <laughs> I don't know if I would have written it if I had known. Um, but there's different models of time travel that you can have. You can have like a groundhog day, repeating day, um, or you can have what I have, which is where um, very difficult to make a change once an event has happened. So, uh, but. Yeah, there was a lot of <laughs> there was a lot of constrictions when it came to time travel. Um, I lost these really basic tools like time jeopardy, when you have to do something in thirty minutes or something like that. <laughs> so I had to figure out all a lot of different ways to create forward momentum and high stakes. Um, I guess without some of the familiar tools of genre um, like time jeopardy. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, there are some things that I think you can lean into a little bit, but it does seem like you've kind of you've created your own version of it, which I really I really enjoyed. Again, I feel like I am speaking around uh, this book quite a bit. But there's so much in it um, that I think audiences will really enjoy. Vanessa, thank you so much uh, for joining me today on Backstory. I really look forward to seeing where this book goes and um, and for the next book to come out. If I'm if I'm completely honest so thank you for joining me today uh, on backstory thank you so much Mel. that was really fun that was vanessa len speaking about her debut novel only a monster which is out now through alan and unwin and is uh, set to be the first of a trilogy um, so definitely one to look out for independently yours triple r 102.7 Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.